You may remember from a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the story of Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi, and we commented on the fact that even though the title of our series is God's Community in the Midst of Empire, the book of Acts doesn't really talk about the kingdom of God that much. It only the, the actual words only appear in a couple places. But yet we saw that as Paul and Silas were in the city of Philippi, interacting with Lydia, the seller of purple, and interacting with um, the slave girl who was, uh, from whom the demon was cast out, and then in jail and interacting with the jailer, that they were subverting in all kinds of ways the way empire works. So even though it may not be as explicit as you might think in Acts, it's still very much there. And now Paul continues his journey. He's actually coming back. He's leaving Athens and Corinth and heading back to Jerusalem. And he ends up in Ephesus, which was a very famous city in its day, partly because it had a great harbor and it was a huge commercial center, a city of commerce, but also because of a number of things, including a library. But there was this great big, huge temple to Artemis, the goddess. Uh, the goddess of hunting and the goddess of chastity. And this, was, this temple was considered in the time of Paul to be one of the seven wonders of the world of that time. So Paul comes into Ephesus. A number of things happen. He ends up being there for a period of two years in which it says he was arguing persuasively about, and here it is, the kingdom of God. What I'd like to read for you today is from chapter 19, starting um, at verse 23 through um, 34. If you are familiar with the story of Acts, you're familiar with the story of the riot that happened in in Ephesus. Um, And that's what we're going to uh, read today. So I'm I'm not reading all the context, and that's just mostly because of time, uh, but hopefully... You either know it or are able to to look it up. Um, But the main focus of what I want to think about with you today comes from the verses that I'm going to read now. So after Acts chapter 19, verse 23. And again, remember that Paul's been in Ephesus about two years. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Notice these two little words, no little disturbance, because there was no little business. There was a lot, a lot of disturbance and a lot of business. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world Worship, And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So you have this, this uh, Apostle Paul in Ephesus. Ephesus, this great city with this great temple. And I messed you up a little bit, Rick. If you put the picture of the temple up, that would be great. It's my fault. Uh, this was the great temple of, the, of Artemis in the city of, um, of, uh, of Ephesus. And then Demetrius and his silversmiths made little images that were much like this. I think this is an actual one of these images. should come up on the screen in a second. Um, all these little silver images of, of Artemis were made and sold. And this was, as the Bible says, big business. And Demetrius felt threatened by Paul and by the message of the kingdom on just about every level of his life. The business from which he and the city had its wealth was threatened because no one was buying these images or the, the sales of images was going down. The gods in which they believed, according to Paul, were not really gods. They were just images made by man. Their trade would come into disrepute. That the temple of the great goddess of Artemis may be counted as nothing. Their religion was threatened. The thing that made their city great, one of the seven wonders of the world. That Artemis may be deposed from her magnificence. And then Demetrius says that would be a disaster for all Asia, not just Ephesus, for all Asia and the whole world. This was big stuff. This was a serious threat. The proclamation that Jesus is Lord impacted all of the all aspects of the life in Ephesus. And Willie James Jennings says this, and I'm going to put it up on the screen so you can follow it. Demetrius has evoked a powerful mix and a winning strategy for fostering hate and mindless violence. If you want people to hate deeply, hate down to the bone, then suggest that someone or something threatens their financial security and their theological beliefs. If you want people to be willing to kill without hesitation, suggest that these same enemies will weaken the social and political standing of a place and a people by their disrupting actions. Once this logic is unleashed on a people, no people has the power to resist its powerful impulse 
because it conjures the spirit of fear and failure and reminds people of their vulnerability in the world. Demetrius grasped the obvious. Their financial world is threatened and would be overturned by this gospel that Paul was preaching. You see what Willie James Jennings is saying here. Once people feel that their financial security and their theological or political beliefs are threatened, they will respond. And they will often respond in violence. In fact, says Willie James Jennings, it's almost irresistible. No people has the power to resist this impulse. And so what did Demetrius do? He literally started a riot. He was so threatened that he started a riot. Now I'd like to ask you this question. How do we transfer this story into today? I mean, it's a story of a riot. Happened about 2,000 years ago. It's about a god, some, some god. So, what, what? So I read the story and it's interesting, but what, what, what nuggets of truth for my everyday life am I supposed to pick up from this story? Well, you know, our country has known riots. Most of us in our lifetime have seen on TV, I remember the riots from the 60s. And in fact, all of us remember the riots that happened last summer. Those riots were riots started by oppressed people. Right? African Americans, usually. People who feel that their rights are being trampled. People who feel that their voice is not being heard. People who feel they're being attacked and killed unjustly. So they rise up. And as Martin Luther King says, the riot is often the voice of the unheard without excusing what they're doing. But it is the voice of the unheard. But that's not the kind of riot that happened in Ephesus. The kind of riot that happened in Ephesus was not a riot of the oppressed, right? It was a riot of the people who were making the money. See the difference? Demetrius was not oppressed. He was probably the head of the silversmiths guild. He was a big, big, big guy on the block big guy in the city he could he could start a riot there's no way he was oppressed he was on the top when have you seen in our history the riot of people not who are oppressed but who feel who are in the middle upper classes but who feel threatened well i can think of one right away and it wasn't all that long ago just about seven months, January 6, 
in Washington, D.C. The riot that happened at the Capitol was not a riot of oppressed people. It was a a riot of upper to middle class who felt threatened. Now hear me very clearly. I am not suggesting here, and I'm not talking about this at all, that all Republicans or even most Republicans or all supporters of Mr. Trump support the riot, agree with it, or behind it. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm just looking simply at the fact that a riot did occur. Some people did it. There are almost 600 arrests that have followed in the months since then. And it's estimated that between 1,000 to 10,000 people were actually involved in the riot and stormed the Capitol. That's just simply a fact, regardless of how it happened. I'm not talking about how it happened. I'm talking about that it happened. And these were people, I'm pretty certain about this, who felt threatened. They felt that their country was threatened. They felt that their values were threatened. They felt perhaps that their livelihoods were threatened. They felt that their religion was threatened. They felt that their freedom was threatened. For them at all kinds of levels, they felt threatened. And they felt that, according to them, the results of the election, if they stood, would further threaten their livelihoods and religion and country and values. And so they rioted. Now, what's been happening in the United States of America over the last 60 years, just say 70, like just about my lifetime? There was the civil rights movement. The struggle for the rights of African-Americans. There was the Americans Disabilities Act. The struggle for people with disabilities to be seen and heard and recognized. There's proof of that movement right in this building. When this building was built in, I don't know, 55, 56, 57, I can almost guarantee you, and some of you were here and can confirm if I'm right or not, there was no wheelchair ramp. Was there a wheelchair ramp? No. When the renovations were done 20 years ago, a wheelchair ramp was put in. Why? Because the people that had been marginalized was now saying, wait a minute, I want to come to church and I want to be able to get up on the podium too, just like everyone else. And so we say, that's correct. We put in a wheelchair ramp. The struggle for the emancipation of women, feminism, gender studies, the struggle for the rights of the LGBTQ community, the struggle for the rights of indigenous peoples, me too, hashtags me too and church too. We're not going to put up anymore with the abuse of women. The struggle to preserve the environment against the extractive economy. We're not going to put up with that anymore. The struggle for the rights of workers. The struggle for the rights of immigrants. In other words, over my lifetime, 
these groups that have for decades and centuries been marginalized and ignored are saying, hey, wait a minute. We are here too. And you have to do something with us. It's almost as if the message, the gospel message, Jesus is Lord, which frees and liberates, which which upends the social and political and economic structures, was actually changing things. That things were being turned upside down. That people who are marginalized are being seen. They're being respected. And they're being liberated. And those movements are considered by many of us who have privilege and power as a threat. In her book, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Kobus Dumay lays that out very sharply. Follow this quote with me. The religious right has been kindling fear in the hearts of American Christians. Communism, secular humanism, feminism, multilateralism, Islamic terrorism, and the erosion of religious freedom Evangelical leaders had rallied support by mobilizing followers to fight battles on which, listen, the fate of the nation and their own families seemed to hinge. Just like Demetrius. The sea change in LGBTQ rights, the apparent erosion of religious freedom, coupled with looming demographic changes and the declining religious loyalty of their own children, heightened the sense of dread among white evangelicals. And like Demetrius, who also had much to lose, Many of us feel threatened. Demetrius started a riot. Some, at least a thousand or two, maybe more, of white evangelicals, of white, of white people, many of whom were Christians, that's obvious, or claimed to be, also started a riot. Because they felt threatened. Or let me put it this way. And if you don't remember anything else, remember this. We tend to read this story about Demetrius and think of him as them. See what he did. See what they did. What if you looked at Demetrius? What if we all looked at Demetrius and didn't see him as them, but him as us? I feel threatened. We feel threatened. And how would that change if we just simply recognized, you know, We're afraid. We're worried. Things are changing. 
Some of the things that I've most loved and valued in my life, I don't know what's going to happen to them. It feels like they're being taken away from me. I don't know what this place is going to be like for my grandchildren or great-grandchildren. I feel threatened and I'm afraid. What should we do? And how should we think? Well, the first thing I would suggest is this. Would it be possible to look at these movements that I've just outlined that have happened throughout the last 60, 70 years? Some of them started before that, obviously. but And see that as a movement of God's kingdom. That many times, even many times in conjunction with the church, but probably most often without, God is still working. And people who are marginalized are being seen and recognized and given a place, given a voice, and given a vote. Could we see these movements to bring those who were outside inside, not as a threat, but as a blessing to be embraced? Could we dare to stop being afraid and start to listen, to empathize, to repent, to walk alongside of, to repair what has been broken? A little bit later, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesian church. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. And Jesus came, he says later, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. What if you saw these movements in society not primarily as a threat but as a movement of God to bring those who are far off nearby, to speak peace to everybody. And what if we could embrace them? Not that everything about these movements is right, perfect, sensible, uh, effective. What if we could make that change in thinking from being threatened to embracing That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I didn't read this verse, but what did Paul do after this riot? It's in chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Jennings puts it this way. What remains for Paul after this riot and the disciples is to stay away from the crowd And flee its fears and its temptations and look for the congregation. Look for the group of Jesus followers who are following Jesus and proclaiming and living out the kingdom in such a way that the societal structures of oppression and of extraction are being destroyed one by one. 
The church in Acts, I'm sure you've thought of this before, did not set up a political party. They didn't set up a political action committee. They didn't set up a moral majority. They didn't start a culture war. They didn't seek access to power. We want to be in the cabinet room. They set up a community of people who claimed and lived as if Jesus was Lord. And they turned the established order upside down by opening themselves up to the weak and the suffering and the marginalized. How could we as a community follow Jesus into this world of fundamental diversity, the common good, not just the private good, not just Jesus is my Savior and because I believe in him, I get to go to heaven when I die, as true as that is, but also the common good that upends the order of empire at every level. It is really sad that Demetrius was so terribly and fundamentally wrong to feel threatened by Jesus. Because that's who he finally was threatened by. He thought he was threatened by Jesus. But he wasn't. If he had embraced Jesus, he would have embraced this movement and been able to see bit by bit God's shalom pouring out into all levels of society from the oppressed who need it to the oppressor who needs it as much if not more and transforming society in every aspect from the heart on out. And he wouldn't have needed to start a riot. Amen.